Well, in my estimation, in the media, the Roman Empire gets a pretty good press these days. It's regarded as a sort of a, a civilizing force in the ancient world. We marvel at the sophistication of its architecture. There's the Colosseum. Can't remember how many thousand it seats, but it's quite a few. Engineering as seen in its aqueducts. 2,000 years old, and I believe for water to run by itself in a slope, it needs to be a ratio of about 1 to 64, 64 along and 1 up. Imagine doing that in the ancient world. No pumps. 2,000-year-old indoor plumbing. I had friends that didn't have indoor plumbing in the 1970s. And a stunning military. Amazing art. Literature, poetry, history. In fact, the Greco-Roman world is the seedbed of modern Western civilization. The Russian word for king, Tsar, comes from Caesar. Caesar. The Holy Roman Empire, as a political union, was only dissolved 200 years ago. The Roman Empire has lingered long in our memory as some sort of golden age. Now, attending an Anglican private school, as I mentioned before, as well as a fair bit of caning, I was taught Latin, which was the language of the empire by the chaplain, and so we would be chanting Amas, Ament, Amentus, and all that kind of stuff. Previous generations to me were taught Greek, so they could read Plato and Socrates and all that. Now, once the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its state religion, this is 320-something, Christian thinkers began to sort of combine what they thought were the best philosophical ideas of the Greek and Roman philosophers with our somewhat more Jewish-flavoured faith. And it's a legacy that we still have. One example is the Roman Catholic doctrine of communion that we've just celebrated, which says that when the bread and the wine are blessed, they literally become the body and blood of our Lord. Now this idea is based on Aristotle's work. Aristotle was a pagan Greek who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, but was regarded by the medieval church as practically a Christian saint. Another example is Plato's idea that our true selves are this immortal soul, while our body, well, that's a slightly disreputable, icky shell that we have to live in for a bit. Yet another is the Greek idea of God the Father as this distant figure who doesn't change, who doesn't suffer, who's way the heck over here somewhere beyond our reach. Now, I defy anyone to read our Bible and come up with that image of Father, Spirit, and Son because our God passionately loves his creation and is trying to gather a redeemed, a saved people to God's self. He's many things, but aloof and distant. He is not. The truth is, that the Roman Empire was very much like any other ancient empire. It was hierarchical, brutally reinforced its rule 
savagely racist and extremely exploitative. Now, I watched a gladiatorial game of footy last night, which went surprisingly well. It's not expecting that. Now, I think there's probably 50,000 people at the ground and some other hundreds of thousands watching on the telly. Now, in footy, you can rip your cruciate ligament. That's what the inside of my right knee looks like. The ACL graft and they're holding the whole thing together. Or be knocked out, and they are serious injuries. Now, when that got done to me, it was a rugby tackle at a church camp that went wrong. On the way to hospital, I was in so much pain, I got through a whole canister of nitrous oxide. I've never known pain like it. But the Roman idea of entertainment was people fighting to the death at the Colosseum or being ripped apart by wild animals. Gotta say, that makes Ireland against the All Blacks, heavyweight boxing or even mixed martial arts seem pretty tame by comparison. You normally leave the ring. In their world, life was very cheap. If you were a slave, you were a legally tradable commodity, available to be used by your owner as he saw fit. You could be worked to death, physically punished, and he might use you for breeding purposes, much like we now do with racehorses or cattle. An alpha male in those days, head of a household, would have a wife to produce an heir for him and run the household, a courtesan or a mistress to hang out and have fun with, and visit prostitutes for sex. It's a pretty ugly world that Jesus was born into and the letter of Romans was written to. Now the empire had many provinces and this is what it looked like at its peak. So you go Spain, England, through central and southern Europe, you've got Turkey, you've got the Caucasus, you're all the way to Iraq there, you're down to Sinai, Egypt, North Africa and back to Spain. That's a lot of real estate. And each of these provinces had a military governor. Now, we're familiar with Pontius Pilate, Roman military governor of Judea, but there were heaps others. And basically, the governors had two tasks. One was to keep order, and the other was to make sure that the tax revenue flowed back to Rome. And what they typically did with tax is instead of having an inland revenue department, they would outsource it. They would find that the local mafia don equivalent and say to them, we'll give you the right to collect taxes from this region in return for this sum of money. And if you get more than this sum of money, well, there's your profit. Hence, some historians think that if there was a drought that year and the crop didn't go well or the fish weren't being caught, the effective, marginal, effective tax rate may have approached 90%. And there was no taxation review authority to complain to. Their idea of tax was basically what we would call now a protection racket. Hence, when you read the Gospels, tax collectors are always social, seen as social outcasts. People didn't like them because they were the shakedown men of their day. 
And in that kind of social world, there was always the possibility of revolt because everyone was always pretty grumpy. But Rome itself, the capital of the empire, was also this cauldron, this festering cauldron of high emotion. The Roman mob was often resentful and angry. So what would the emperors do? Well, they'd put on a good gladiatorial show. Some other people would die for their entertainment and they'd feel better. They liked mayhem, they liked blood. More the better. My sense is that Russell Crowe's movie Gladiator, you've seen that, it's a fine work, is a pretty good representation of the social context of its time, which is maybe another hundred years later than the Book of Romans was written. We think that letter was written in the 50s, late 50s. So only about a generation or so after Jesus' death, so pretty, pretty new. Now there was bitter resentment in Rome about tax at that time, which had culminated in an actual revolt in the year 58. And one of the things that the Romans were grumpy about was the Jews had this special deal that instead of having to pay tax to the imperial cult, they could pay tax to their synagogue. An anti-Jewish feeling which encompassed the early church sort of simmered away in the background. Now in the year 19 and the year 49, just a decade prior to Romans, all the Jews had been kicked out of Rome to keep the mob happy. A few years later, Nero wanted to do a bit of redevelopment of Rome and he started a fire which got out of control and burned a whole chunk of it and he blamed the Christians. Which is probably why Paul and possibly Peter were martyred in Rome in the mid-60s. Strange religious people who did not worship idols, hence were they atheists, but ate flesh and drank blood as we've just done, made really good scapegoats. Now Paul was a Roman citizen. So quite high up in the food chain, he said about this about his world from Galatians. Jesus set us free from the present evil age. So into this very volatile political situation, Paul wrote the letter to Romans. In chapter 1 and 8, there's this vision of God growing a new community of Jew and pagan Gentiles with the fledgling church in Rome. In Christ, he's freed them from their sin, they're forgiven, he's infused them with the power of the Spirit, and he's brought them together as one in Christ. And then he writes this to the Roman church, which is our text today. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, very afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honour to whom honour is due. Now, given my description of the Roman Empire, and life for Christians in Rome in particular, there are some quite bitter pills to swallow in this passage. There's some surprising statements. The first one. All government is God-ordained. Now, the idea that the social structures that we live in are part of God's providential care for us, yeah, that's fine. If there was no order, there would be anarchy and the bullies and the rich would dominate. And there are territories in the world that are like that. We call them non-states. Somalia's government collapsed in the 80s where they had famine and civil war and has only really re-established itself in the last few years. Uh, parts of Afghanistan have gone through that with the varying occupying forces there and big chunks of the countryside were ungovernable. The Roman Empire in our lingo is pretty much a fascist state. There's no democracy or participation. You do what you're told or you're in trouble. Paul was not keen, though, very clearly, on rebellion against the Roman Empire. So if they're fine, well, that pretty much rules out any anti-government activity, doesn't it? Then there's verses 3 to 5. All governments are good. Now, the idea that government is meant to restrain bad behaviour and punish us when we do wrong and reward good behaviour, well, that makes sense. But Paul here seems to be saying that, by definition, government is good. And so good people have nothing to fear from it. Nonsense. He had been imprisoned. He had been whipped. And the universal experience since then of evil governments big to differ with him. Just think about our recent last 50 years. Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge in Cambodia tore the heart out of that society in the 1970s by slaughtering its intellectuals, its professionals, its leaders. And eventually, in their desire to get rid of all of them, they decided that anyone wearing glasses had to be an intellectual because they've been doing too much reading. So I'd be toast. Kim Jong-un currently ruthlessly bullies the people of North Korea. And Putin is waging this war, completely unjustified war, against the people of Ukraine. Governments are often good, but they are frequently not. And what's more, Paul knew that. We in this country, I think, are more fortunate than most in that regard, whatever you might think of our various governments. And then there's a the third one. Pay your taxes. I mentioned earlier what a racket Roman Empire taxes were, but okay, you've got to pay the man. Shades here of Jesus' comment, pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, you can see the difficulties in this passage, but this passage doesn't exist in isolation. In the book of Exodus, YHWH, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God the Father. 
inspires Moses to lead a rebellion, to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Our God is the God who raised Jesus from the dead, having first delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. Our God inspired, organised and led a massive revolt against the God-inspired and God-ordained leaders of Egypt. In the Gospels, Jesus seemed to take quite a bit of delight, I think, in breaking the local rules about what you could do on the Sabbath. He almost seemed to heal to annoy them. And they had this rule, I think, that if you went into a cornfield and you went like this with the corn cob, that was harvesting and you weren't allowed to do it. And he said, hey, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. But they were still the God-ordained authorities were telling him he shouldn't do that. And then in Acts 5, Peter and John had been told by the Jewish authorities, stop preaching about this religious um, this risen Jesus and how much notice did they take of that none they kept going and the apostle John in Revelation 13 takes us to limit he describes the whole sweep of history as being this battle between the church and the beast and the beast in John's day was very clearly the Roman Empire in more recent centuries, we might say it's popped up as the third German Third Reich, the communist dictatorships of the last century, the European empires of the century before, global capitalism that we now experience. The beast is seen in systems of government that are exploitative, violent and cruel. They treat the world and its inhabitants, us, as things to use. Do you notice how it's now human resources? I'm a resource. Used to be personnel. I think I'd rather be a person than a resource. We are things to use and exploit, rather than seeing the world as God's glorious creation to look after and all people as being made in God's image and therefore valuable. That is the mark, or as, as you say in poker, the tell of the beast. And the beast, John tells us, is at war with the church. So clearly these other scriptures, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, show that Romans 13 is not the last word on the Christian and the church's relationship with the state. Christian ethics are not so straightforward as we often imagine. Knowing right and wrong is not easy. For example... Take this one. We're to honour our father and mother. But what if our father and mother are running the local methamphetamine production and distribution business and they wanted us to do a few drop-offs for them? Don't think so. Likewise, we should generally obey the government, but Corinthine Boom and her family clearly did the right thing in hiding Jews in their house in the Netherlands in World War II. Moral decision-making often requires us to balance these competing interests. Now, the critique of that is to say, well, you just get to pick to do what you want, and there's no real principles. But I think the real question is, how should God's truth be expressed into the situation that we find ourselves in? 
Yes, you and I might answer that question in different ways. Okay, it won't always be as black and white as we would like it to be. We've had a good recent example with all these vaccine mandates and all the rest of it. There are faithful Christians on both sides of that argument. And that's okay. Right, so going from there, back to Romans. I mentioned earlier the political and social volatility of Rome back then. The Christians were at great physical risk. And indeed, half, of, half a dozen years later, were subject to a full-on deadly persecution because, as I said, Nero blamed them for the great fire. It's a horrific picture, isn't it? The church is first of many such trials. Might Paul have been writing to them out of concern for the physical safety of the Roman church? Because if a mob turned on the Christians, they were going to need the government's help. Another factor that was afoot was that most of these churches, Christians were trying to work out how to live in Christian freedom. Not being under the law had been misunderstood in Corinth as meaning that any sort of sexual immorality was okay. And now it was party time. If a second coming thought to be imminent, like you know Thursday week, some folk at Thessalonica were not working, they quit their jobs and they'd stopped earning, they were bludgeoning off other people. Paul rebukes them. When the Jehovah's Witnesses prophesied that Jesus was returning in 1975, many of them quit their jobs to devote themselves 100% of the time to evangelism. But he didn't come back in 1975, just like he hadn't come back in 1914. 1976 must have been a pretty tricky year in that organisation. I wonder here whether Paul was concerned that folk would read do not be conformed to the world from Romans 12, 1 to 2 as being the sort of divine license to just do anything you like and defy the state. Now if they'd taken that approach that would have put them in danger from the mob or the government and it would have damaged the reputation of the Christian gospel. Paul is clear. He doesn't want them to subvert the Roman government. Not, I think, because he thinks it was a fantastically righteous institution, because it clearly was not. It was exploitative, it was cruel, it was racist. And he knew, he knew that, and he had the scars to prove it. More likely, I think, is he did not want the gospel-identified rev revolution which would have been to invite the Roman state to crush the church just as it was getting going. Now the interesting thing about that is that 260 years later, the Christian faith became the state religion of the Roman Empire. So what these tiny group of people believed at that point became what pretty much everyone believed. That was not achieved by a violent insurrection, or even civil disobedience, but by the fact that the church patiently obeyed God's mission. When the empire persecuted Christians, the pagans were quite impressed by the calm way that our brothers and sisters faced their grisly deaths. 
They were also impressed that when the plague or another disaster came into town, typically all the rich people would assemble their um, households and get the Hades out of there, like the plague or a flood or a fire. But the rich Christians, they stayed, and they looked after the people who couldn't leave, often at the cost of their own lives. Our forebears modelled concern for the poor and faith unto death. People noticed, and the church grew steadily. Possibly by the 320s, maybe 10 to 15% of the Roman Empire were Christian at that point. I think that Paul was urging the Romans and us to be good citizens for the sake of the gospel. He was not making the state into a supremely, uh, absolutely supreme institution. And we see this in verse 1 and 2, in which he says that Caesar's power came from God. Now, I can assure you that Caesar would not have agreed with that. He saw himself as a god, and as far as he was concerned, his power came from him. Thank you very much. Hence, people were required to burn incense or say a prayer to him once a year as a sign of his civic loyalty. Caesar was a bit like Napoleon. When the chap in the funny hat who was the Cardinal Archbishop of France tried to stick the crown onto Napoleon's head, Napoleon grabbed it out of his hands and crowned himself. I do it, as my daughter would have said when she was two or three. He didn't need the church to endorse his power. He had taken power. The church at Pergamum, who John writes to in Revelation 2, was a centre of emperor worship. John refers to them living where Satan's throne is. If you didn't light your incense or pray the prayer to Caesar once a year, you paid quite an economic price. You were on the fringe of their world. I heard uh, uh, an Eastern European church leader talking a few years ago, and he said that under communism... If they knew that you were a believer, and they probably would, they would not let you go to university or study. All the believers in that country paid a real price for their faith. You couldn't study and you couldn't get a government job, even though they were perfectly good citizens. For the sake of the gospel, they put up with that exclusion. For the sake of the gospel in Iran, Christian women wear headscarves and long robes so as not to give offence. For the sake of the gospel in Turkey, Christians do not openly share their faith, but rather fly under the radar. For the sake of the gospel in China, Christian tourists should not go looking for an underground house church to visit on a Sunday morning. Paul and the God who inspired him would have us be good citizens wherever possible. However, the New Testament is clear, this does not extend to worshipping idols, and that might mean that we eventually feel a little bit like second-class citizens. But frankly, the gospel and its reputation is far more important than our rights and our aspirations. I anticipate, in my lifetime, Bible and schools and the Christian trusts like the Opawahu Trust that we have will be banned from public school grounds. I imagine that we will not have Christian military chaplains or hospital chaplains anymore. Periods of overseas missionary service will not count towards eligibility for New Zealand super. Bible college students will not receive any public funding by way of student allowances or loans. 
I also imagine that the church's tax-exempt status will whittle away eventually to nothing. And government has every right to do these things if it wants to. And somehow I wonder whether losing these privileges might do us some good. However, I feel sure that we will continue to gather for worship, mutual support, encouragement, as we always have. We will continue to love our neighbour as best we can and try and share the gospel with them. The church has survived the persecution of a hostile Roman Empire. The compromise involved in being the Roman Empire's official church, the rise of Islam with its armed conflicts, feudalism and the aristocracy of nation-states which tried to make us into the tame voice, colonisation which used us as the pacifiers of conquered people, the industrial revolution which dehumanised us all, communism that tried to eradicate us and the rise of capitalism which now sees us as a market niche. Who knows which way our culture, our worlds will head and when it might end. But if human history has taught us one thing, it's that every single culture or empire, including the modern Western world, will cease one day. However, I have confidence that God's church will remain. We've seen everyone else off. And God will not abandon us. Our job is to be faithful to our call to be his people, the junior partners in his mission to save the world and keep going. Amen. Thank you for your kind attentions. Could the musicians please come up? We've got one final song.